Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We're busy today talking about the reaction to the mask mandate being lifted. We're 11 days or so away, if you're listening to this on March 10th, from that happening. Some nerves about it, no question. Depends who you are. Depends on your age, your level of risk, probably your vaccination status too. And so we'll see where it goes. I've got thoughts on it. I know Shiba Siddiqui, our producer slash on-air contributor, a huge part of the show does as well. So we weigh in on those. Chatterbox is great. We talk a lot about the settlement for Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown with another news organization that allows him to move his political feet forward and whether or not the bad journalism that created um, his uh, absence as a party leader cost him being Ontario Premier as of this moment right now. Um, Certainly a bright political future ahead if he chooses so um, to run for the federal Conservative Party of Canada leadership. All that much, much more coming up next on the podcast. Toronto Today begins now. The idea of where it's going to go with schools, and we won't just talk about that this morning, for sure. Um, For some, the answer is fairly obvious. Let's give this a shot. That's Hope is not a plan. I've heard people say that when really being skeptical, but I'm like, wait a minute. Why is it the side that wants less restrictions? Why are they the hopeful ones? Why is the side that says, oh, I, you know, a lot of these kids are just wearing cloth masks, which are pretty insufficient, as many documented to contain the spread of the Omicron variant. Why are we the hopeful ones when we say, Let's we've we've crushed hospitalizations. Hospitalizations are 19 percent of what they were in early January. Crushed it. Okay, some of that has nothing to do with our behavior. Some of that has nothing to do with things being shut down. It's Omicron doing what it was always going to do all through late November, all through the month of December. Everybody you knew was getting it. You remember what that was like. And we're all racing for tests, right? We keep we keep referencing Hunger Games, although many of us just haven't seen the Hunger Games, but we'd use it as a reference to talk about what was happening for, with tests and whatnot. So um, we're the hopeful ones. Let me get that right. And hope is not based on any kind of data, but we're actually moving forward based on the data. Your hope in saying, let's just do it for two more weeks. Who's the one being hopeful here? Me? I am? Based on data. But you're saying, well, let's just do two more weeks and we'll hope that uh, that things stay the same. Or you could follow the trends um, and the lines as they are right now and say it's fairly obvious people have had opportunities to be vaccinated and the vast majority of people are. There's N95 masks that are much better options for teachers than um, facial decorations slash cloth masks. Okay. Um, Omicron started to peak in a bunch of parts of Canada and a bunch of parts of the United States. And we started looking and wondering, even the mask proponents, as I'd call them, uh, could point to studies, okay, associating mask mandates with lower COVID-19 rates in schools. But they at least acknowledge the difficulties of masking kids. They do. Um, sometimes you'll see people put up, uh, a f- like, like photo, um, uh, drawings from kids in school where they're all wearing masks and I find them utterly disturbing. I find them completely difficult to look at. I get sad when I look at those kids drawing them. Hey, draw yourself wearing a mask. I don't get to see your nose, your, t- your teeth, your smile, none of that. And, uh, and I do think there was an indefinite sense of this 
when you're asking people to do something for 17 months. We'd have done anything and did so for three or four months. We absolutely did that. It's another, and we were we were discussing the need for adults to do that. But who's? I'll bring it back again. Who's the hopeful one here? The people that are basing their their concepts on data and being pragmatic and being realistic about what we can continue to do. I've heard people say, well, you know what? Uh, COVID isn't done yet. I'm very aware of that. Wanting masks off kids and thinking, should we ever have masked five, six, seven-year-olds or so? You pick the number and you start there. They've never masked a single child in Europe under the age of 12. They never have. And uh, these, I know people have referenced Florida for being out there with their policies, and I don't agree with a lot of what Florida's done. But many of these um, non-right-leaning, you don't exactly have Ron DeSantis running Sweden or Norway or Finland. And, uh, and when we look at what they were able to do, keep economies open, never close schools, never put masks on kids, all of that stuff really ends up mattering to me. And I, I, I take note of it. But uh, it, look, there, I think it's hard for kids to wear masks properly. I have read the scientific papers that do denote how hard it is to hear, how hard it is to hear. When, when, when do you go to uh, just to sit at a, uh, at a restaurant or you go to a bank teller? I know sometimes it's through plexiglass. How many times have you struggled? I have a loud voice, but not everybody's got my voice. I, I have a lot of struggle to hear what, the, what people are saying. And, uh, and sometimes you mix in the mask with a soft speaking voice with, um, how would I put it? English is a newer language and it's hard. Anybody would tell you that it's hard. Okay. So I've got empathy there. That's not some kind of shot. That's me going, that's me feeling emotive going, oh, it'd be so much easier for this person to have a conversation with me if, if I could understand them better. And the mask is the biggest hurdle to that. Now think about it if you're five or six. Think about it if you're seven or eight. You need to see faces, identify facial expressions, emotions, understand speech. And that gets harder when people are wearing masks. And let's not even start with putting them on toddlers or kids under five. The World Health Organization said, don't ever do this. Don't ever do this. They do not recommend and never have masks for kids under age five. Oh, it's... uh. It, it, it gives me the chills, to be perfectly honest. I don't want to normalize this. I won't be part of, hey, let's normalize masks. I also won't be part of this. Hey, uh, rich doctor. Rich doctor tweets out, hey, I haven't even gotten the flu in two years. So let's keep wa- these are These are great things. Why don't we talk about that? I'm like, hey, your health is your business. My kid's face is mine. You don't get, that's not a reason. You're switching the goal. You're moving the goalposts and you're switching the topic here. That's fantastic that rich doctor hasn't gotten the flu in two years, but uh, your five-year-old wears a mask outside at recess. I heard a caller to Kelly's show yesterday who documented his kids in grade one, wife works at the school. It's tricky territory to be critical, isn't it? Like, you don't, you only want to say so much. I get that 100%. And, uh, and it's just, it pains him beyond belief to have a six-year-old playing outside at recess. And I asked parents that on Twitter yesterday, and I couldn't believe the responses. Not only are there a lot of kids uh, that end up having to wear masks outside at recess, 
they have to play within, you know, like like stay within the lines, within a like painted area on the tarmac. I know some schools uh, don't have, you know, a giant soccer field, a baseball field. You know, when you'd go play sports when you were a kid, and you'd be like, wow, this school doesn't have what we have. We're really, really lucky. You do realize that even at, at age eight or nine, that that's the case. Let me uh, give you this from uh, Doug Ford. He said this and referenced the kids in the school. Now, he sounded a little bit downbeaten and downtrodden. I wanted sort of a more positive tone from the premier as far as this matter goes. Here's what he said yesterday. We have to move move forward from this. Like people, people are exhausted, you know, and the poor kids in those classrooms, too. Like we, we, we got to move on. Yeah, that's something. It's not everything, but it's something. And don't paint this as, oh, well, that's not a good enough reason to move on. What about the numbers? Well, the numbers are are augmenting the reason to move on. If you're saying we need two more weeks, you're going to have to explain what the metrics are that move us back the other way. And I'd be fully engaged in a conversation. I see all these, my goodness, I see all these, uh, it, it was beyond predictable. You've got, I want you to understand the irony of teachers union heads calling this move by Doug Ford political. I need you to understand that that's a lot more than um, a, a bunch of uh, spoons when all you need is a, is a knife and, and rain on your wedding day. I need you to understand the irony of somebody who runs a teacher's union calling something else political. I, ca- I, I can't get my head around uh, that. I cannot for the life of me. Like It's like you're playing a soap opera character. Is Heather Locklear really that mean on Melrose Place? No, she's just a character. That's my thought about about some of the teachers unions heads. You do realize I could have written your script yesterday. I know I know it. I know the playbook. I know it word for word. I know what you're going to come up with. And I would back teachers and teacher unions. I know what they achieve. I know what they do for their membership. I know what the, uh, the union dues go to. But that's not. Come on. That's not the that's not the way to play this game right now. You're being political by criticizing it. You're being political by trying. You, you would have closed schools for all of January. You didn't even want them to open on January 19th. And it was a disgrace that they opened as late as they opened. It absolutely was. Dropping mask mandates for kids in Alberta schools hasn't resulted in an increase in COVID cases among kids. I look at Alberta every day. I mention it on the show when I can. And I cannot defend so much of their COVID policy. But not only, not only did mask mandates being lifted in Alberta not set the province on fire, it didn't even start a fire. And they're not nearly as vaccinated as we are. This was the very last interview I chose to do with, with uh, pandemic Pete Uni was in the summer. And he was like, Delta, Delta, this is going to be. Te-. And I'm like, hmm, sir, good sir, aren't we very well vaccinated compared to Alberta? Like, I see the footage from Alberta. I know they're on fire right now, but I also see it in Mississippi and Louisiana. No, 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 Delta this. We can't be opening stadiums, schools, and everything went great until Omicron. It was getting better every day, every week. We were all doing more things. (laughs) Numbers dropped. The numbers dropped when schools opened in the fall. Unsafe September? No, pretty safe September, to be honest. Use that hashtag instead. So when I see the idea that, well... You can't be just fatigued by COVID. I'm like, no, I can't. But you can't be overwhelmed and be myopic and think it's the only thing on the planet. And the metrics, if they actually set metrics, if some of these people criticizing these moves set metrics for March 31st and they said, Greg, here's what we, we need to do to go back to masks in schools. 
Here's where the hospitalizations need to be. Here's where the ICUs need to be. Here's where the test percentage needs to be. That's fine. So many people who criticize the province saying, well, what is this? What are the metrics? Why just an arbitrary date? Um, aren't you setting an arbitrary date for two weeks from now? What changes then? What if numbers are the same? What if they drop? You won't tell us. And it's obvious why you won't, because it involves numbers and actual data and not feelings and not fear and not politics and not any of that. I want this to work as bad as anybody. I will acknowledge many of the critics of opening um, up in January wanted it to work. Some didn't. Some wanted chaos. Some wanted disorder. But this is what we have right now. Okay. I knew there'd be a lot of tripling and quadrupling down yesterday. I knew there'd be a lot of temper tantrums about this. Um, and guess what? The vaccines are really damn good. So I hope you have them. The masks out there are really damn good. So I hope you have them. Which one are you not confident in standing in, in front of a classroom? Which one are you more worried about? The vaccines or the masks? Tell me, tell me, are you vaccine hesitant even though you've got three in your arm? You can tell me if that's indeed the case. Do we need the queen to come over here? 95-year-old Queen Elizabeth to come over here and teach some phys ed classes in the spring? Do, do I need Queen Elizabeth II to come and run my kid's grad in June? Because she'll do it. She's 95 and just recovered from COVID. You're 33 and you've got a booster. Speaking of the prime minister, we know there's people that would want to unseat him. We know there's somebody that wanted to be prime minister at one point in time for the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada. Jean Charest will enter into the campaign today to be the next Conservative Party leader of Canada, replacing Aaron O'Toole. Pierre Polyev's already in. Leslie Lewis is already in. There's a lot of speculation about the mayor of Brampton, Patrick Brown, which we discussed already. Anthony Robart had a few minutes earlier this morning on uh, with our friends at Global News Morning to discuss such potential achievements and potential elevations for Mr. Share with uh, with Anthony Robart. This is a few minutes of that. Many questions, of course, but you've been out of politics almost 10 years out of federal yep. politics, what almost approaching 25 years. Why return now for Canada? You know, this, the, the common thread of my whole political life, Anthony, has been the idea of Canada. And uh, I, I think that we as citizens of this country have won the first prize of, uh, in, in the world in terms of, of the country in which we're born. And I see a country that's way below its potential uh, economically, uh, socially, uh, you know, in, in our place in the world. And I, I also, you know, feel very strongly that the Conservative Party of Canada has a responsibility to the country and to Canadians to be a national political party and that alternative to, uh, to the Liberal government. And uh, that's not happening now. The party is divided. So this is, this is really a moment that's important, not just for the party, for the country, to, uh, to unite and to bring into our, uh, our party members and to offer a national alternative, a national vision of the country. But of course, you know, politicians have attempted comebacks before to lead their parties, uh, haven't been successful. Joe Clark for one, John Turner for another. What do you say to those, the critics who worry that you may have lost a step, the edge that is actually required after all these years away from politics? Well, Anthony, you know, all my political career people have said that. I was in a political party that was reduced to two members only in 1993. Guess what? 
And uh, and then in 1995, I was uh, front and center of the referendum for the future of the country. I went on to lead the Liberal Party of Quebec in 98 and prevent another referendum. And then I had three conse- consecutive uh, majority governments. And if there's anyone who knows what it is to lead, to face uh, odds, and to win, because uh, I know how to organize, and I know how to win and win a majority government. I'm that person. That's what I believe in. And in fact, I bring this experience to the job. I'll, I'll give you an example. I think it would be a breath of fresh air in Ottawa to have a prime minister who has the experience of governing a major province and to know who knows how to make this federal system work efficiently to get big things done. And and that's exactly what I'm going to bring to the leadership, both of the party and the country. But over the course of your political career, you, you say that this is for Canada. This is what Canada needs. This is also what the party needs. Um, as premier and even in federal politics, you've gone head to head with the force of Quebec separatism. Uh, yeah. Given all this, some see the divisions across Canada right now as rivaling that. Um, I'm not sure if that's true or not. But then there's the divide in the Conservative Party between uh, the social conservative faction, the Red Tories, everything in between, for example. A divide, as you mentioned, has contributed to three election losses in a row. Big question is, what can be done to mend those fences? And why is Jean Charest the man for the job? Well, because I've been tested in that regard. In my ability to lead a caucus, my ability to unite people, my ability to be a conservative... Period. I mean, I'm not trying to be a right, left wing, red, <coughs> blue. That's not the idea here. The idea is the values in which we uh, will govern ourselves. I believe in fiscal conservatism, and I have a record on that. I believe in market-based economy. That's a conservative value. In policies that are pro-growth for economy, which allow us then to make choices. In policies that support families. Uh, conservatives have a view of how federalism works, Antony, that is ingrained in our DNA and history that respects the uh, jurisdiction of the provinces and to make the federal system work efficiently. I believe in the rule of law. I mean, those are the basic values by which I will govern and have always governed myself and that I'll bring to the party and to the country. Well, Mr. Shrey, as expected, um, really even before you announced, the attacks began, uh, including from your leadership challenger, Pierre Poiliev, on your conservative record. As Liberal Premier of Quebec, you raise taxes, uh, you oppose the abolition of long gun registry, you've supported and implemented a carbon tax in Quebec. First of all, I mean, do you regret any of those decisions? And how do you plan going forward to fend off those attacks? Anthony, I am going to be attacked. Now, I want, I want to warn you, not only am I going to be attacked by some people in this race, and that says more about them than me, actually. I mean, they're, gonna, they're spending more time attacking me than actually defending their own race. And I take it as a compliment, because it is. But watch for the attacks that are going to come from the Bloc Québécois and the separatists. I mean, it is going to be massive. And why? Because if I lead this party, the difference between me and the other candidates is that I will win. I've done it in the past against great odds. I will win and form an, a majority government. And the Bloc Québécois, for example, know very well that I will bring to Ottawa a, a delegation of Quebec MPs and that they're going to be out. So the, the attacks are going to be massive. There'll be plenty of time for me during the campaign to speak to my record. And my record speaks for itself. I mean, it is about whether it's on taxes, fiscal conservatism. I'll give you one example. When Mr. Legault comes to government after 15 years uh, of my government with Mr. Cuillard, 
He's left with an $8 billion surplus and a higher credit rating in Quebec than Ontario. Now, that didn't happen overnight. It happened after years of hard work and discipline, something I believe in and something that I delivered for the people of Quebec who have a stronger economy today and a best, better fiscal situation than they had before. Josh Ray with Anthony Robart. I'm sure if you missed some of that, uh, it'll uh, be featured on uh, the news today. Uh, Global, Global News at 530, Global News at 6 uh, with Alan Carter and Tracy Taunt tonight. Quick thought on that. The numbers matter, okay? Like platitudes are out there. You're going to say what you're going to say. I can do it. No one else can. That's There's no problem saying that. Every candidate's going to say that. Here were the numbers in 2021. Seats, federal seats in Ontario. Liberals had 78. The Conservatives, 37. The NDP slipped and lost one. Conservatives lost two seats. Now, PPC. PPC went from 2019 at 1.6. The lockdown, the pandemic, COVID, all that stuff. And they went to 5.5%. We know it was a talking point. What is this just lockdown based? And I feel it is. Once we're out of the pandemic, like out, out of the pandemic. We're going to have COVID around for some time. But once we're out of restrictions, I don't know where the PPC goes. I don't know how they siphon off votes, especially from the Conservative Party of Canada. I don't know how they do it. So if a lot of those votes go back to the Conservatives, any candidate's going to have a better time here. But I think about Patrick Brown, and I think about the GTA, and I don't know if Jean Charest can bust through that red wall. you got to turn 22 seats around in Ontario to win the election. If everything else held steady, and it probably won't, Sheree would get more from Quebec. So let's say he needs 14 or 15 seats. It's still a chunk. It's still a chunk. I know there were people that went in, voted for Justin Trudeau a first time, a second time, a third time in 2021, and they may not have wanted to, but they didn't trust Aaron O'Toole the same way they didn't trust Andrew Scheer in 2019. They could be uber frustrated with the liberal government. And whenever we get our next election... It's going to be really interesting. They need to do much, much better in Ontario. Popular vote doesn't mean very much. You got to win Ontario seats. Stephanie in Pickering writes The masks are coming off. I'm a seventh grade teacher. All of us will be cautious and will be careful, but we already eat with our kids and exercise with our kids as well. She teaches phys ed. My kids can never see their friends smile. They can never see their friends frown. I worry my students aren't developing empathy and I'm doing everything I can. It's taken six months for my own fifth grader to make friends because it's hard to tell what people are doing or what they look like. And kids don't trust people when they can't see their faces. I hear from parents all the time saying that. And I've heard constantly, constantly, well, um, you know, my kid doesn't, it's not a big deal. Look, it's not a massive deal in our house also, but I would make the case that if any time, if you tell your five-year-old that they could kill grandma without a mask on, it's amazing how they'll comply. It's amazing how they'll fall in line. You think they're going to have a debate about it? You think this is going to, honestly, you think this is going to turn into uh, Frost Nixon? Give me a break. It's not. Uh, Shiva Siddiqui joins me now. I know you had a a conversation of sorts with your kids last night uh, and in the afternoon about masks. I did. Well, first of all, we heard what Dr. Kieran Moore, who is our chief medical officer of health, had to say yesterday. He announced what we've been waiting for to hear that we've been talking about on this show for months, right? Here's what he had to say. And in alignment with community masking requirements, masks will no longer be required 
of children, students, and staff, or visitors in childcare, schools, school board offices, and or student transportation. This is music to my ears. I was ecstatic. Masks are coming off of kids in schools. I have been waiting for this for such a long time, Greg. So here's what I did. I spoke to my kids about this after school yesterday, and I recorded the conversation. Now, they didn't know I was recording it, but I did tell them after the fact. Uh, and I asked for their permission to play. Well, <laughs> and and this, it's not something you do every week, I should point oh, out. Oh, of yeah. course not. I just casually put my phone out because I wanted to know what their thoughts were. I wanted to get that recorded. I had no idea what they were going to say. Um, and I did ask for their permission to play this on the radio. Three of the four of them said yes. My eldest did not want to be in the radio, so I deleted his opinion. He was playing Clash Royale at the time in his iPad anyway. Uh, but... But I will say that he is totally for taking the mask off. He doesn't care. He was like, yeah, yeah, I'm ready. Okay, whatever. But my younger three, they had a lot to say. And let's hear what they had to say. Did you guys hear the news of what's happening on March 21st? I think we're we're taking masks off and we won't be able to wear it anymore. How do you feel about that? I feel okay. I think I'm going to keep my mask on, though. Why? Because I don't really, I I don't want to catch COVID. What if the rest of your class isn't wearing masks, how would you feel? Would you? Would that convince you or encourage you? They'll just be at COVID and I'll get a private lesson. Oh, come on. Really? Yeah. Do you really think that? Yep. Okay, well, it's up to you, whatever you're comfortable with. Okay. How about you? Are you ready to take off your mask at school? Maybe. I think I might want to keep it on for the first week because um, I just want to test things out. But then after you know, I get more comfortable and see most of my class, without masks on, I might decide to take it off. So do you think that by not wearing a mask, you'll get COVID? Maybe, yeah. Well, it's up to both of you. Whatever you decide, I'll support it, but I hope that you're comfortable taking off your masks eventually at school. Are you comfortable taking your mask off at school? No. Why not? Because maybe I'll get COVID-19. You're worried you're gonna get COVID-19? Wouldn't it be fun, though, to see your teacher's face when she's talking to you or all of your friends at school yeah. when you're in class? You can see each other? Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. I don't think you'd get COVID-19 if you take off your mask. Okay. I'm going to take off my mask. Solid convincing right there at the end. That's, that's amazing <laughs> audio. How did you feel? Yeah. How'd you feel like they're, you, you can see their face when they're saying those things? How'd that make you feel as mom? Greg, I felt so sad. Yeah. This is what we've done to Ontario kids during this pandemic. And I'm not going to force them to go one way or another. I am going to encourage them. But if they're not comfortable, I'm not pushing them. But it's they're so scared to get COVID. This is where we're at. And those conversations do not happen in our house. Those are happening at school or at their sports practices. I don't know where, but they're not comfortable. I support them in that, but they can't be the only kids who feel this way. I mean, we had Mike Drillet on the show yesterday. He yeah. said his daughter's going to keep wearing her mask. She's not going to take it off. And he tells her to take it off in the car. And my kid was wearing it. My 15-year-old was wearing it in the car a lot, even in the summer and, and, and in the early fall. Like this fall, 21, not 20. It breaks my heart, Brady. Right. Um, do you, Now, they eat lunch there, right? They do. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And the masks are not on during lunch. Um, but I just think that they've been programmed. It's been, you know, a year and a half of you have to keep your mask on or bad things will happen to you or those around you. And mm-hmm. they don't want to be responsible for that. Yeah. So I don't I get where they're coming from. I get the anxiety. I hope that as the world starts opening up again, they will feel more comfortable. But it's just their reaction. I thought 
I mean, I didn't think they'd be jumping for joy. I wasn't sure what I thought, but they're not ready. Would you like me to uh, come over and oh, uh, yeah. and uh, do you have a lectern at all? <laughs> do you have anything a dais I can uh, I can stand uh, you know, at? We're gonna have to move. Yeah, change our phone numbers. Would you like? Why don't I? Why don't I have like a uh, uh, Colin Furness or somebody make a house call? <laughs> Can I do that? Can he call them jerks for eating uh, eating in front of other people and going out to restaurants? No, he can call. On, he'll come co- on. Can I do that? Let's not. Go I'm, sh- there. I'm sure he's available for a price. I mean, I'm no. sure you know. Got to make the most of this while it lasts. We can ask anybody to do a week of anything, probably anything, anybody to do two weeks of something right now, and it's been this way for months. When you've extended this out to 17 months. The burden of proof has to be on those who want to keep doing something that's unnatural to kids. And I'm sorry, it is. Let's stop normalizing this, okay? Let's stop it. I'm not going to oppose you and your choice. I'm never going to tell another parent what to do. I don't do that. I never could. I won't tell you how to parent. You're going to have to be spanking your kid in, in, the, in, the, in the frozen food aisle in Sobeys for me to step in. You're going to have to be berating and haranguing him to the point where I think it's abusive before I step in. But I'm not stepping in. And we've got a lot of step-in t- parents right now trying to tell us how to run our households. A fully vaccinated household. A healthy household. You, the burden of proof is on you. The zealots have the burden of proof right now. Not those who oppose this or who are for choice. Okay? So a lot of things are going to look really bad in retrospect. The school closures sure do. We should have found a way. We know that. And some of that lays at the, at the feet of the, of the provincial government. Who could make the case otherwise? But these harms have added up, including ones we don't even know about right now. Some are obvious and they're staring us right in the face. Some we don't even know about yet. Okay? You, you intervene on a kid's existence behavior-wise. Get ready because you don't know what's coming. Some of it you do. Some of it you don't. Your, you needed to prove, you needed to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that masking in schools had no ill effect on kids and that prevented the spread of COVID-19. And I think we know neither of those things have occurred. Neither of them have. Not even one of the two have. Caroline Alfonso is the education reporter for the Globe and Mail. She joins us now. Um, So much of this. Now, I mentioned, again, adults. We're all um, getting uh, up in arms about this. We all have emotions about this. But the practicality of kids in school, um, it's tough to judge. It's really tough to get a, a verdict on how they feel. I think we all agree kids will try and be conscientious, Carolyn. But you don't hear as much noise among the kids. They sort of just go on. They're doing what you know they want to do to protect their teachers in front of them and maybe to protect their classmates. And they do remove their masks when they go outside for recess, when they do go outside for lunch. They don't find, at least in my household and among the people that I have, you know, in my circles, they don't find it as burdensome. And you're right, you know, in Alberta. Um, I was speaking with the board chair at Edmonton Public Schools the other day, and I said, you know, you have lifted the mask, ma- or the province has lifted the mask mandate there. What is what is your sense of what's happening in your schools? And she said, in some schools, 90 to 95% of students are still wearing their masks. They're still coming in wearing their masks. So I think, you know, a lot of thinking is, hopefully things start getting better again in the spring. We'll see what we saw last spring, where the numbers kind of fell off. A little bit. And so maybe people are just sort of like, maybe let's give it another month or so and see what happens. And then we can probably remove our masks. Is there a measure as well of looking at 
some of the dire predictions in January. It's a different scenario just just with opening schools. And we had uh, we knew Omicron. I think you and I talked right before the Christmas break last. And and we knew that this wave is going to crush us with cases. It's going to hit unvaccinated people really, really hard. But for all of us who are vaccinated and for kids, um, it it's a less severe uh, variant that seemed mm-hmm. to be borne out. I know people don't like the mild word, so I'm cautious not to use it. I guess I just did. But it was documented as being less severe, but way, way, way highly more transmissible. So when I bring that up and I say we waited until mid-January, we got got teachers the masks they've been asking for for months and years. I know we've talked about that before. We, we got we got them hopefully more um, uh, afforded them more opportunity to get boosted. And 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 the chaos and a lot of the disorder um, didn't ensue. I know there's I know there's been it's not been normal, far from it, but it was better than staying virtual. That was kind of that crushed all mm-hmm. of our souls to go back mm-hmm. virtual for a couple of weeks at the start of January. I don't know if there's an interrelation here, um, but it, but I think I hope it stirred some confidence among parents and kids and 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 I hope some teachers that we we've we've got to start walking forward. And if this goes the wrong way, I, I hope we'll all be in agreement that we've got to we got to pull back and and reverse the car a little bit. We'll see. I, I I think you're you know one of the fears going into the school year and the winter term. We knew sort of Omicron was generally mild among kids and among the vaccinated. I think the fear was that if you had it, even if your symptoms were mild and only lasted a couple of days, you were it was disrupting that classroom. Mm-hmm. I think that was the fear. Like, where are those subs coming in for from to replace teachers that have to be at home? You know, how many kids are at home for long periods of time? Because at the end of the day, uh, a lot of kids under 11 are not vaccinated. Um, so, you know, what was going to happen there? I think moving forward, just speaking with, I was talking to Dr. Cohen at Sick Kids the other day, just speaking with him, I asked him, do you think masks will always sort of be in our back pocket that we can just pull out as a health and safety measure? And, you know, he he said there's discussions ongoing about that because say you have like some, not COVID related, but another respiratory illness that an outbreak in your school or in your classroom, perhaps you, you know, the kids wear their masks for two weeks and then they don't have to do online learning. Maybe they can keep attending school. And maybe that's just part of our, like our arsenal of health and safety measures that are in schools for a longer period of time. Yeah, it, it is very possible. You've got children that play amateur sports. It, so do I, is there any lesson to be learned from some of the protocols, some of the, the confidence that we all had to go back and and do that, whether it's been in the hockey rinks or in the, in the soccer domes uh, this winter is one thing in the fall, right? With, with outdoor air, it's been another thing to experience through this uh, long, cold, snowy uh, Ontario winter. Yeah. I mean, we've had, we have kids playing minor hockey and we have seen quite a number of cases there, Greg. Mm -hmm. Um, It impacted our family uh, a few months ago as well. Uh, everybody's fine because everybody was vaccinated and mm-hmm. got through this, but we've been seeing a number of cases. I mean, one of the things that we have been very strict on, especially on my son's team, is that the team wears their masks in the dressing room. Uh, it's a very confined space and they've been doing that and they've been relatively good at doing that. I I feel like some of those lessons could probably continue to some degree, um, just to kind of keep things going. Just, you know, if someone has a cold, for example, maybe that's something that we keep going uh, down the road and continue doing. Um, but 
I feel like COVID has touched all of us at some point or the other. It's just here. It's here to stay. And our, um, we just, I think each of us going forward have to do sort of the risk benefit analysis for our own circumstances and decide sort of what we're going to enroll our kids in and what we're going to do with our kids and how beneficial it is and what risk we're willing to take to do so. Caroline Alfonso is uh, the education reporter and an excellent one at that for the Globe and Mail joining us on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. I know there's a lot of people that look and and we've got an election in under three months and say, well, what's political? What isn't? Um, You've covered these. It's very hard to tell. Education was such a contentious election issue. It felt like it got even more contentious between um, the, the teacher unions, the boards and the Ford government prior to COVID, there were obviously, uh, you know, days of action happening in in the mm-hmm. winter of uh, 19 going into 20. It's hard to tell what's what, right? Because the, the, the Ford government would like to stay in office. The other parties would like to get uh, get where the Ford government is. So it it's really tough to tell what's a political gesture, what's based on science. I think about Dr. Eileen Davila, who was very adamant about, well, we shouldn't have schools should be closed at this point in time and uh, and sports shouldn't happen at this point in time. She that rankled a lot of parents who were like, come on, let's get back at it. And that said, she's adamant that we that we drop the mask. How much of it is political um, and how much is based on evidence and science? I mean, you know, Greg, you and I have talked about this. People are tired. It's been two years of this, right? Two years of our kids home and in school, back and forth, two years of isolation. And I I do get that. Um, What the pediatricians and the children's hospital docs were saying is essentially like, two more weeks, give us two more weeks of wearing masks when kids come back from March break, we'll reevaluate, we'll reassess, we'll see if they are needed in schools. That was the call. The government decided against that. They decided that masks are being lifted right away. You know, your Mm -hmm. guess is as good as mine. How political was this decision? Um, Clearly, it wasn't based on science. The science table says it was not consulted on it. The doctors have spoken out about it. So more political than evidence-based? Seems like it. Mm. Caroline Alfonso is our guest on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. It's tough to guess, like with your, I, I noticed you wrote about the, those conversations in, in Alberta and what's been happening over the last month. It's it's difficult to foresee even to guess at a at a percentage. I had a com- private conversation with a vice principal today who says, I'm ready personally to take the mask off in, in my school. She's a VP of a, of a K to eight private school, but she is wondering, she doesn't want to influence, right? It's like when your boss says, well, we're getting behind this initiative and you're like, yeah, boss, I'm happy to give up my Saturday. It's, it's going to be a weird mix of, am I doing it? Cause the leaders of my school are doing it. Am I doing it? Cause I feel personally safe. Do I not do it? Cause I've got, an immunocompromised child or an older relative at home. I, again, we're all just so yeah. exhausted from trying to, we're, we're measuring our own risk and looking out for others as well. And, and it's that balancing act, isn't it? I think, you know, it is a choice and it will be a choice for families and for educators to make. And I think um, it'll be the education system, you know, those who work in it will have a challenge navigating this um, and how to, how to sort of, you know, when you have children who are not wearing masks and those who are, you know, how to prevent sort of stigmatization and things like that. So I think it will be a challenge that will play out in the school system um, in the weeks ahead. And uh, it is it is playing out in 
other provinces and educators there are navigating through it. Um, I haven't heard incidences where it's gotten out of hand, thank goodness. But, you know, that is going to be something that stays with us until the school year ends. Caroline Alfonso, our guest. When when I reference back, last thing, when I reference back to to January as a parent or just observing other parents, did we did we go back with with trepidation or do, did we start to grow with uh, with confidence? Obviously, if you had a brush with Omicron in your own household, it's um, I, yeah. I get it. Yes. I, I, yes. it. It's jangly and it affects the nerves a little differently. I've got friends who have an older relative at home. And they probably do things a little differently than 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 I might over the last three or four weeks. And I understand that, too. Um, did, did we all grow, I suppose, in, in confidence over the last seven, eight weeks that things have gone maybe better than than even the most optimistic person forecast, yeah. at least in terms of keeping schools open? They have. I think, again, that risk benefit analysis comes into play. Right. We, we want our kids to be in school not for not for our jobs and what we do, but also they benefit from being in that classroom. They benefit from being in sports and extracurricular activities, right? And yes, we were hit with Omicron in our household, but we st- we were still cautious at the end of the day. Like we didn't have great big parties in our house or anything or invited multiple people in here. We were still cautious, but we know what's important. I think, at you know, over these mm-hmm. past two years, we understand that, these things for our children are important and we will take steps to make that happen. I think, you know, when we saw sort of how Omicron was playing out in the system, maybe we were sort of like, okay, we're vaccinated now. The vaccine is there for our children too. Perhaps we can sort of take steps. We're not where we were two years ago. We were vaccinated now. It's a big difference. Caroline Alfonso uh, joining us from the Globe and Mail. Alan Carter, 640 Toronto host and global news anchor. Uh, it's great to have you. Good morning. Hi. Sabrina Nanji is with us from QP Observer as well. Hi, Sabrina. You and Alan know each other. You, you've, you've rubbed elbows, come across each other in the, in the, in the political landscape, haven't you? Yes, yeah, so sounds familiar. <laughs> that's uh, that's a, that's a good campaign slogan. If Alan was running for office, be, Alan Carter sounds familiar. It's it's a, it's a positive. We, there have been worse campaign slogans out there. All right, here we go. Alan, I want to start with you. Yesterday, um, Patrick Brown, um, you, you both cover provincial politics. Uh, it was documented yesterday, uh, and this isn't to again throw bombs at uh, colleagues slash rivals over at CTV or Bell Media. It's not. But they they screwed this up and they took four years to apologize. Litigation may have held up some of that apology, but they got the story very wrong, stating yesterday key details provided to CTV for the story were factually incorrect and required correction. Is there any other way to view this other than their mistake and their journalism cost Patrick Brown the position of premier of Ontario? I think there's a little bit more nuance to it than that. I mean, I, I think that I, I think you've got to look at this deal this week in one well, through one prism and one prism only, and that is a Patrick Brown leadership bid for the Conservative Party. That's why this happened this week. Yeah. yeah yes, I understand. You know the the, the 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 errors in that story and the reaction to that story cost him uh, being premier. He wouldn't be premier today if it wasn't for that airing of that story. But I think there's also a little bit more to it than that. I, I, there was the story, and then there was the disastrous press conference 
Like, you know, part of political leadership is how do you handle adversity? And he blew that. He blew that press conference. And then he walks out and he finds that his senior staff have resigned en masse. And, you know, he doesn't have control of his own caucus. And, you know, before the sun comes up the next day, he's gone, thrown under the bus. And I think there's more nuance to it than that. And this whole deal is all about getting this thing behind him so he can run for the leadership of the conservatives. Yeah, I think I think all that. Sabrina, this was happening at a time, obviously, when I remember being on the air uh, in the city, obviously, at another station the morning that the Matt Lauer um, uh, firing and termination was announced by NBC. So when when Me Too hit and rightly so in many of these cases, we were just flooded. It's Matt Lauer. It's Harvey Weinstein. It's it's Louis C.K. did something. So this was all happening in a it, it was just a, a hailstorm of effects like this. But this one hit close to home for Ontario politics. I also find it quite interesting that uh, one of the you know lead dogs in, in getting after um, Patrick Brown was his then fellow MPP, Randy Hillier, who accused Patrick Brown of, quote, dirty and crooked politics. So Yes, there was. I think Alan's right in that some of the stuff was ha- happened kind of ham-handedly, but there were a lot of phone calls, if you will, coming from inside the House that may have wanted a change in leadership, and and it was orchestrated as such, according to some. Yeah, I mean, I think you know the that disastrous press conference where we had images of Patrick Brown, you know, kind of fleeing Queens Park in the middle of the night with reporters chasing him. Like that was an awful look, and that happened uh, in in January at the time. And coincidentally, today is actually Doug Ford's anniversary of becoming PC leader, replacing Patrick Brown. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure you can think about you know how quickly that all happened. Um, and I think you're right there. But look, like what I'm worried about here, obviously. Um, you know, this is kind of serving what's happened now as, uh, you know, a clearing of, of Brown's name in a way. And, and yeah, it does clear a path for him to kind of run with, uh, you know, maybe less baggage for federal conservative leader. Obviously, voters in Brampton thought that uh, it was still A-OK to elect him as mayor. Um, but I think what I'm worried about here, uh, you know, specifics of this case aside, is that the problem with CTV's reporting um, might do like more harm than good in, in a post-Me Too environment. Like, um, you know, it's we already know it's so hard for women, especially those who work in political circles, you know, to come forward and tell their stories if they're facing harassment or misconduct on the job. And um, that's because like, I, I hope that, you know, this story doesn't turn into or get used um, uh, as a way to paint, uh, you know, women who who make these accusations as, you know, uh, jilted lovers or, or out to seek fame, um, that type of thing. Uh, you know, so I think we need to be a bit careful here in how we're assessing yeah. this. But yeah, of course, the onus is on the reporters to do their due diligence. And um, I think from Patrick Brown's perspective, he thinks this is behind him for sure. I think you're right about that, Sabrina. I think sometimes, um, and I mentioned this earlier, all three of us are well aware, you know, Alan and I will get phone calls or Sabrina, I'm sure you'll get me. This is why we don't trust the media is stories like this. And I'm like, ah, oh, those four weeks in Ottawa, we see a lot of that. And it's no excuse to harass reporters. It's no excuse to hurl uh, insults and, and, and foul, uh, you know, foul things towards towards actual other human beings but it is it's it's not nothing it's something and to your point yeah uh, a woman says this happened to me i'm I, i've got the receipts i'd swear by it and then someone may go well remember what happened in the patrick brown case it'll be your word against his and it's we can't have that we can't have people worried about their their career getting jeopardized or blown up because of something that actually happened that they want to come forward and talk about 
No, you're, you're absolutely right. And obviously, you know, uh, the specifics of this case, that's, that's, I'm kind of just putting that aside when I say that, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I I think this is going to, you know, allow Patrick Brown to put, to throw his hat in the ring federally. Uh, you know, it's going to be a high stakes bid for him. My sources are, are saying he's going to make it official on Sunday. Uh, but you know, he's been kind of sitting pretty as mayor of Brampton. So it would be a big risk for him. He's had this reputation for emphasizing, you know, the progressive side of progressive conservative when he was leading the piece. Uh, so I think that this, you know, uh, we might see maybe the Conservative Party taking a more uh, progressive mm-hmm. bend. And, you know, I would be kind of curious to follow up with Patrick and ask him, you know, how he's going to address, uh, you know, uh, harassment on the job, especially in politics, if you'll have a, a party, uh, you know, mandate or, or rules or a code of conduct around that. Those are really fair questions. Alan, if if Mayor Brown announces uh, and throws his hat into the ring, we know Jean Charest doing it in Alberta today. He's talking with our colleague Anthony Robart, and I'm sure uh, you'll have clips on it uh, on the 530 and 6 o'clock news tonight. But um, there's a lot of talk about sort of bashing, th- like the Kool-Aid man, bashing through that red wall. And Aaron O'Toole, an Ontario M- MP, could not do it. And Andrew Scheer certainly didn't do it in 2019 can Patrick Brown do well in Ontario in the GTA? Because it feels like he's already got those Alberta. Alberta and Saskatchewan are only going one way next election. Manitoba probably also. Ontario feels so key to getting uh, to getting a liberal government unseated. Well, you, I mean, the, the whole path to power federally is you have to go through either through vote-rich Ontario or you have to sweep Quebec and, and other regions. I mean, it's just, that's just the way the math works. The thing is about Patrick Brown is, you know, I, I was at Queen's Park Bureau Chief for, for Global when uh, he began his run for the leadership after Hudak stepped down. And everybody in Queen's Park and the inside was like, who is this guy? Nobody knew who he was. No, no, he was discounted. He was. And the thing is, is he outworked and outorganized everybody and won that leadership. And then when he was totally counted out after the story and the mm-hmm. disastrous press conference, again, he outworks Linda Jeffrey and gets himself elected in Brampton. I, if you, <laughs> you would be uh, unwise to count him out as leader of the uh, conservative party. I think his connections, his deep, um, his deep roots in different communities across this country Man, I would not bet against him to win it, especially against if you have a situation on the federal scene where Charest and Poliev kind of split the party, yeah, you know, split one way and the other. It's just an opportunity for Brown to move right up the middle. And in terms of federal voting, you know, I think he would be very electable because, you know, he has conservative values, but yet he would be palatable to GTA voters. And Alan, I think, you know, speak to this. I think he has has been a shining star during the pandemic. The Friday afternoon that uh, all of a sudden we're going to have police checks and Sylvia Jones is like, rat out your neighbor and let's stop cars. Patrick Brown says, no, we shouldn't be doing that. And we shouldn't be closing playgrounds either. He, he took a, a kind of almost a pointed picture of him and his young son on a walk. And the next day, snap of a finger, uh, all that yellow tape was cut down and playgrounds were reopened. So I've been critical of mayors and yeah, Mayor Tory as well that haven't maybe spoken up against the federal government. He hasn't been shy about, or the provincial government rather, Alan, he hasn't been shy about doing it in two years. Yeah, no, and I think he's been, he's been effective. Uh, I think he's got a pretty loyal base in Brampton. Um, again, I would, I, you, you bet against him at your own risk. 
All right. Uh, Sabrina, a lot of heightened emotions about masks, the mandate. That was a big moment. I, I thought I'm judging body language here. I thought Doug Ford looked a little exhausted. He didn't seem uh, happy or exuberant with an announcement. And, and, and yet we knew there'd be mixed reaction. And we knew, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of criticism that, well, that announcement about masks is, is political and the timing. But the criticism about the announcement is also pl- we can't tell what's political and what's not over these next two and a half months, can we? Well, I'm always looking at things from a political perspective, uh, as you know, but no, you know, I mean, the the premier was making an unrelated announcement in Brantford. Uh, I thought it was, you know, a good move to have the top doctor, Kieran Moore, be the one to kind of say this, because that does kind of, uh, you know, throw cold water on certainly these accusations, especially coming from the opposition critics, that this is a political move. Uh, It's not just, you know, the other politicians on the other side of the aisle. It's also the nurses, uh, the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, you know, said this is putting politics before science. So, you know, politically speaking, probably smart for the premier to, you know, adopt a somber attitude. But I think that for the most part, a lot of people are happy with mask mandates lifting. It's mainly just the timing. And I think that that's kind of, you know, what we've been hearing, especially about schools. Um, It's pretty damning to have uh, the Children's Health Coalition, which includes sick kids and CHEO hospitals saying they would have rather, you know, keep masks in place uh, in, in schools until two weeks after the March break. So especially if families are going away on vacation that that kind of gives us a chance to assess where we're at but um you know i I think now uh there there's no uh holding back the like we're shifting to a a personal responsibility side of things instead of you know do this do that uh the the rules from the public health officials so i don't know if we're going to see too many uh municipalities going it alone uh they they have the power to do that under section 22 uh part of the the health promotion and protection act uh, but, you know, we've already seen Toronto and Ottawa and some others come out and say they're just going to stick with the provincial timeline here. I think it might be more likely that we see hmm. some of that happen in schools. Uh, you know, some schools, I, I believe Hamilton as well, is reviewing it and seeing if they can keep these rules in place. But don't forget, you know, masks aren't going to be banned. Uh, they'll still be recommended. And I, I think, you know, we we have to listen to the top doctor when he says that at least for himself, he's going to feel uh, more comfortable wearing a mask in crowded places. So I don't think they're going away anytime soon, uh, you know, when it comes to the personal choice side of things either. Uh, Alan, do we expect, uh, as Sabrina puts it, maybe school boards, local boards of health to to go it alone? I thought that was big. I, I, there were a lot of people who've been right in lockstep about lockdowns and everything with Eileen Davila, and they weren't happy yesterday with Toronto's talk. talk. I'm like, oh, OK, you're, she's, she does everything you want for 23 months, steps out on a limb here, backs the province. And now she's, you know, she's she's your enemy. This is going to be really fascinating. I thought that was a big statement yesterday from the city of Toronto saying we're on board with this. Yeah, listen, I don't, I don't see. I mean, it, it, it's possible. Like you look at Niagara and the, the medical officer health there. That's a possibility that there might be something that happens on a local level there. But I, I think pretty much right across the province, it's going to be following the provincial lead. I, you know, as Sabrina says, you got the top doctor. I mean, you know, what Doctor Moore says uh, carries a lot of weight, and you know, he says. You know, it's okay for, for masks to lift. I, the thing is, is that, you know, we're back in the situation in Ontario, which is 
does this kind of choose your own adventure with the pandemic? <laughs> We've had this all the way along. You know, it's like, well, you figure it out. You know, like, it's like, well, you know, you, you assess your own risk. Oh, well, did you get it wrong? Well, that's your fault. You know, there's just kind of that element to this. Back to the Dr. David Williams greatest hit CD, I think. <laughs> uh, we may see a slight undulation, Alan, as you like to uh, point out uh, <laughs> from the 21st on. Love having you guys this morning. Thanks so much. Be well. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We'll be back with a live show tomorrow on Friday morning, the 11th of March, taking you into the weekend. And uh, week next week, March break, kids off, St. Patrick's Day, NCAA March Madness. We'll get there. Thank you again for listening.